0: Well, good morning, Boundless. Good morning. It is always a joy to hear you um, praying for one another and for the different ministries here in the church. Um, I'm constantly encouraged by both your prayers and um, just the way that you love God's Word. Um, so I'm excited today to examine God's Word with you. Um, we're going to be looking at forgiving one another based out of Ephesians 4, um, so if you would, just pray with me before we begin. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and how clear you are in it to teach us, to grow us, um, not, just in, not just individually, but with one another. I pray that you would just bring forth your word clearly, um, that you would work in our hearts, um, soften us to the truth, uh, that we would go from here um, just being more like you. Pray us all in Jesus' name, Amen. All right. Well, I'm deeply honored and humbled um, to be speaking with you from God's Word. At the beginning of the semester, we spent a couple weeks looking at what God has to say about the church. We saw that it is God's will for those who name Him as Lord to be committed to one another in a healthy local church. If you haven't heard those messages, like um, Clay taught, I would definitely encourage you. To listen to those on Spotify. The church is a grace given to us by God, and it is for our growth. As we seek to follow God's commands, we are a part of each other's growth into the likeness of Christ. But God does not just tell us to be in a local church and leave it at that, He gives us specific commands for how we are to relate to one another. The past few weeks, we have examined some of the one another commands. We've seen that God is abundantly clear about how we are to relate to one another. Chet showed us the basis of this, that we are united with Christ and therefore are united with one another. We are united to Christ and to one another, and as a result of this, we are called to loving fellowship in the local church. We are clearly commanded to love one another, 1 John 4, 7, and not only that, but that love should be the motivation for faithfulness in each of the other one-another commands. In the past weeks, we've seen that God commands us to love one another at all times, exhort one another to greater faithfulness, comfort one another in affliction, and serve one another sacrificially. As we've looked at these commands, we've seen that Christ is the ultimate standard and example of love. He is the perfect exhorter the perfect comforter, and the perfect servant. Ultimately, it is our union with Christ that results in growth, obedience, and maturity. If we are in Christ, we will seek to be faithful in these areas by God's grace. But as we are acutely aware, this process of putting off sin and putting on the new self created after Christ is a messy process. And this process doesn't just impact us, does it? (laughs) Oh no. Our sin doesn't just affect us. It affects those around us, those here in the church. Our sin isn't just hypothetical. It's a reality. Our sin isn't just general. It is specific. Our sin is not just impersonal. It is highly personal. We sin against one another. It's not even a question. We sin against one another in the church. We ignore the person speaking to us or even try to get out of a conversation because what we really want to do is talk to that other person, our best friend across the sanctuary. We are impatient and unkind in our speech. We say we are too busy to help a classmate study, but then instead spend the time watching Netflix. We sin against others, and others sin against us. And when this happens, we are tempted to respond in all sorts of ways, aren't we? Our response to sin is never neutral. Someone goes too far with a joke at our expense, and we tear them down in conversations with mutual friends. You give someone a ride to church, and they make not only you, but your whole car late, and you miss the opportunity to fellowship before the service. You even miss, miss the first song. You give them the silent treatment, but later talk about it with your friends and throw them under the bus. You make sure that your friends know that the other person was responsible for you being late, not yourself. We are sinned against in many ways and are tempted to respond sinfully, compounding the situation. But do not despair. God knows this. He is not surprised. We'll see from Scripture today that God is specific in how we are to respond to sin against us. God has a solution that is unlike what we see in the world. God's solution is opposite of how we are tempted to respond to sin against us. God calls us to genuine forgiveness. Genuine forgiveness is the freely given, costly removal of debt. Genuine forgiveness is the freely given, costly removal of debt. When people sin against us and we genuinely forgive... God uses that to make us more like Christ. Even further, God uses that to make us most like Christ. It is crucial that we forgive one another. It is God's will for us to forgive one another. So if it is so crucial that we forgive one another, we must understand what the Bible says about forgiveness. We need motivation to forgive. Truths that we can hold on to when we really don't want to forgive. And God has given us just that. Here are five truths that will motivate us to forgive. Five truths that will motivate us to forgive one another. Number one, forgiving others is commanded for our growth. Forgiving others is commanded for our growth. If you are in Christ, if you have the Spirit of God in you, you love his word. You love reading it, studying it, memorizing it, and applying it. Where before you hated God and his word, you now love his word and submit to it. You don't just go through life randomly trying to figure out how how God wants you to live. No, you seek to understand his commands and live as he instructs. And this new way is in complete contrast with the old self. It's a complete contrast with the old self. Ephesians 4 describes a number of specific ways that our old self is in direct contrast with the new self. Look with me at Ephesians 4, 31 through 32. That's going to be our anchor passage for today. Ephesians 4, 31 through 32. Let all bitterness and wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And here's the contrast. You could say, rather. Rather, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God, in Christ, forgave you. Let all bitterness, and wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Here we see the pattern of the old man compared to what the pattern is that, to be, that is to be ours in Christ. That's the language of walk back in verse 17 of Ephesians 4. We see what the sinful response to sin or perceived sin against us is, and we see that contrasted with the Christ-like response, which is forgiveness. This old man that characterized our lives before Christ still rears its head in the way that we respond to one another because, ultimately, we won't be perfected until we are with Christ. So, what is the pattern of unbelievers and our old self? Look back at Ephesians 4.31. Firstly, the pattern is of bitterness. Bitterness. Bitterness is to respond to sin by harboring resentment. This is being unforgiving so that your fuse is shorter and shorter the next time you are sinned against. Bitterness is a general attitude, a baseline level of animosity. This is described in Hebrews twelve fifteen as the root of bitterness that springs up, a bitter root that produces bitter fruit. So I'm currently studying to be a physical therapist, and I know there are some other science nerds out there. (laughs) One of the most fascinating aspects of the human body is the ability of blood to clot. When you get a cut, you bleed a little, and your body quickly rushes cells called platelets to plug the hole, and you eventually get a scab, right? But if any of you have been around little kids, maybe some of you guys who work in in the childcare here, and maybe... If any of you have been around kids, what they do, and probably some of you still do, you pick the scab off. What happens then? Your body has to clot and scab all over again, and you're more likely to get a scar. You are keeping the wound fresh. You're freshening the wounds of sin against you when you harbor bitterness. And that wound is not just a little paper cut. God sees it as a nasty Rotten black wound that is bitterness. What else characterizes the old self? Wrath. This is heated passion that boils up and explodes. This is seeking retaliation. This is seeking restitution for the wrongs against you. This is payback. Oh, well, the world loves payback, doesn't it? Next, anger. Anger. This is violent passion that is continual. A temper and character of easy explosiveness. Anger is very similar to wrath that we just looked at. Anger asks the question, how could they sin against me? And looks for opportunities to explode. Clamor. Clamor is literally crying out in distress. Clamor says to others, Look at me. Look how greatly I have been wronged. Come be angry with me at this person. Can you believe what this person did to me? This can be so easily expressed in gossip, can it? Slander. Slander is speech that seeks to injure. When we slander, we try to detract, detract from another's character. This is tearing someone down in the eyes of others. With the intent to injure. The Greek word here is where we get our English word, blaspheme. And finally, malice. Malice is ill will that seeks wickedness. This is the foundation for each of the other aspects of our old self that we just looked at. Malice is wishes harm on another and rejoices when another is harmed. Malice is a malignant tumor, a cancer that seeks to devour more and more, and is never satisfied. This is the pattern of how unbelievers respond when sinned against. And this is the pattern of how we responded before Christ saved us. And this is the behavior that we still fight as believers. But for those who are in Christ, our lives should not be marked by this. Our lives should be marked by just the opposite when we are sinned against. But God doesn't simply say, stop doing these things. He does not just say, change your behavior. He commands us to put off these things and to put on Christ's character in the process of growth. The process of growth. Now, Clay has taught extensively on the process of growth that we see here in Ephesians 4. We are to put off the old self, we are to renew our minds with the truth, and we are to put on the new self. Created after Christ. If you want to study this more, shameless plug to come to evening service as Clay is preaching through that right now. Look again at what we see here in Ephesians. We are to put off the things that we just listed bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice and put on first kindness. Kindness. Kindness is a mild, pleasant demeanor and mode of operation. This is in direct contrast to the bitterness that we saw earlier. Kindness seeks the good of others and expects nothing in return. Kindness is shown in forgiveness when we are sinned against. Look at Luke 6:35 through 36 with me. Luke 6, 35. But love your enemies and do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. We evidence our position as sons of the Most High when we return actions even by our enemies with kindness. Now, I want you to notice something in this passage real quick before we move on. Sometimes, When we are sinned against and are kind in return, there is no thanks for that kindness, and we may even be sinned against again. Picture your roommate or housemate who is messier than you were when you were literally two years old. You have asked them kindly to try to be a little cleaner and have even given some suggestions. But things seem to get even messier. One day, while your roommate is gone, you respond to their selfishness by kindly picking up some of their clothes and folding them. You even pick up their books and put them in a stack, in alphabetical order. But when your roommate comes home, not only do they not thank you, they tell you that you made it harder for them to find their clothes for the next day. (laughs) Ouch. In this moment, we are tempted to explode. How could they be so insensitive and ungrateful? But we are to, in this moment, Put off wrath and put on kindness to the ungrateful, as our Lord does. And this kindness results in forgiveness. This may mean talking to them lovingly and with kindness either in that moment or at a later time. It may mean covering over the offense in love and kindness, as we see in 1 Corinthians 13 and 1 Peter 4.8. This is what putting on kindness looks like. Kindness results in forgiveness over and over and over again. Over. Not only are we commanded to put on kindness, but we are also commanded to put on tenderheartedness. Tenderheartedness is quite literally a disposition of compassion. Disposition of compassion. This is a care for others and an attitude that moves towards them. This is desiring the well being of others. And out of this attitude, out of this disposition, We respond with forgiveness. We'll see later that God does not just command this in a vacuum. He has demonstrated the ultimate example of kindness and tenderheartedness in how he deals with us. God commands us to forgive, not just as an action, but because our hearts are now characterized by a pattern of kindness and tenderheartedness. The putting off of revengeful responses to sin is an active process. We have the Spirit of God in us, making his will come to be. And what is his will? Our sanctification, as we see in Romans 8. So, when we are sinned against, we are commanded to forgive, and as we do so, we are motivated by the truth that it is God's will for us to be characterized by forgiveness. And as we see in Ephesians 4, 15-16, this is not an individual process. Each of us who are in Christ are being sanctified. Ephesians four fifteen through 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We are one body building one another up as we put off falsehood and speak the truth. And this leads us to the second truth that motivates our forgiveness. Forgiving others is a way we preserve unity. Forgiving others is a way we preserve unity. As we just saw from Ephesians 4, we are united to one another. The language Paul uses is a body joined and held together. We are united together in one body But when we are sinned against, our brothers and sisters feel more like enemies, don't they? That's not how someone who is united with me would treat me. Maybe I'm not really united to them. Maybe I'll just avoid them, and the hurt will go away. Maybe I should just leave the church and go to another one. There are many others in the area, after all. I know that I'm commanded to forgive, but it will just be easier to avoid them and sweep the sin under the rug. But this is like ignoring that wound that we talked about earlier. This is like letting an autoimmune disease run rampant. Autoimmune diseases are some of the most difficult maladies to treat because the body identifies another part of the body as an enemy and uses the good disease-fighting process that God has designed in our bodies and attacks its own systems. This is what we do if we do not forgive. We label another part of the body of Christ as an enemy and use our words to slander rather than bless. We tear down instead of build up. We just saw that God uses the sin against us to grow us as we put off sinful responses and put on forgiveness. When we don't forgive, we take that grace, the sin against us, that the Lord is using and we use it to divide. Sin threatens to divide if we respond to it sinfully, but unites when we respond to forgiveness. First, forgiving one another preserves unity with Christ. Being married recently, I've thought a lot about the various roles of a husband, including protecting my wife. I protect her because the Bible says we are one, We are united together in marriage. And this marriage union is a reflection of Christ's union with the church, as we see later in Ephesians. If someone were to say to me, I really enjoy spending time with you, but I just can't stand your wife. That would never happen, by the way. Claire is incredibly kind. I would take that as an insult against me. And so would any other loving husband. Likewise, a lack of forgiveness towards one another is an insult to Christ. Christ cares about our unity with one another and our unity with him. To be united with him is to be united with one another. We see back in Ephesians 2, 5-6 through 6, that we are united to Christ. We have been made alive with Christ, raised with Christ, and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And we see that this union with Christ results in union with one another. It's a huge part of what the rest of Ephesians is about. It is God's will for us to be united to one another in Christ. God has chosen our family for us. And when we are sinned against, but choose to forgive, we are more united with Christ's will for us. So, when we forgive one another... We preserve unity with one another, and because of our ultimate unity, with Christ. Forgiving others is also a way we preserve preserve unity with one another. We have been saved into the family of God, but we we are given the specific command to forgive. Our unity with one another is not passive. It is active membership to one another. Let's think for a minute about the sin in our hearts when we do not forgive. What's really going on when we don't forgive one another? What you're really saying is, the offense against me is too great. I must serve justice. What have you done there? You have set yourself up as judge, jury, and executioner. You have taken the rightful place of God as a judge. And we are unbiased judges, are we? In our pride, we think, how could they possibly sin against me? In these situations, we tend to minimize our own sin and maximize maximize the sin of others. I know I am tempted to do that. Yeah, I may speak shortly to others sometimes, but did you hear how rude he was to me? Think about this. That sin against you, as incredibly personal as it feels... Is ultimately against our sovereign Lord, and He does not excuse sin. If they are a believer, that sin is already paid for in Jesus' death on the cross. And if they are not a believer, that person will bear the wrath of God for their sin for all eternity. That sin against you feels a little less personal now, doesn't it? John MacArthur put it this way God is more offended than you, and He forgives. Okay, so I've been going pretty hard on you guys, but let's think about the flip side of this. When we forgive, we are actively building up one another in love. We are uniting with one another as we have been ultimately united with Christ. When we say, My unity with you is more important than how slighted I feel right now, so I will forgive you, we are preserving unity with one another through forgiveness. That sin against us no longer divides us against one another. It is an opportunity for growth, and each part of the body can work more properly, as Paul said in Ephesians 4.16. Our immune system is fighting the true enemy, sin, and not our own body, one another. Wow. Isn't that motivating? We can actively unite with one another as God intended, When we forgive one another. And this probably won't just be once. We'll probably be sinned against over and over and over and over. And yet we are commanded to forgive. We may be tempted to think, man, how many times will I have to forgive? There's got to be a limit to this, right? Peter asked Jesus the exact same question in Matthew 18, and his response was 70 times 7, which does not literally mean 490. It basically means infinity, endless. Paul also anticipates this question in Ephesians as he gives us our next motivation to forgive. Our next motivation to forgive. Forgiving others is generated by God's forgiveness. Forgiving others is generated by God's forgiveness of us. When Paul tells us in Ephesians 4.32 to forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you, He means that we are to forgive in the same way that he forgave and that understanding how much we have been forgiven by God should be the ultimate motivator to forgive. We're to forgive in the same way that God has and understanding his forgiveness of us is the ultimate motivator for us to forgive others. We must understand God's forgiveness of us. As we seek to forgive one another as God has commanded, we must root our understanding of his forgiveness in the Bible. Look at the manner of God's forgiveness of us. The manner of his forgiveness. First, it is costly. God's forgiveness of us is costly. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians six nineteen through 20 1 Corinthians 6. Starting in verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We were bought with a costly price, the sacrifice of Christ. God does not just wave his hand at sin, God does not dismiss sin. He slaughtered his own son to forgive us. That is the ultimate price. That is costly. Makes every sacrifice we could make to forgive one another seem pretty small, doesn't it? Compared to Christ's sacrifice. God does not dismiss sin. Rather, he actively paid the ultimate sacrifice to forgive us. And because God's forgiveness is costly to him, it is free to us. Listen to how Paul describes our state and what God did about it in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. We were completely and utterly indebted to God. We owed him infinitely and could do absolutely nothing about it. Nor did we want to. We see here that we were following the course of this world, fulfilling our own desires as much as we possibly could, and were quite literally dead. God's forgiveness is completely free. We have absolutely no ability to pay Him. And His forgiveness is also complete. God removes our sin, not to set it aside and bring it up later. But he puts it farther away from us than we can even imagine. The language the Bible uses for this is, as far as the east is from the west. Look at Psalm 103, 10 through 12. You can put a little bookmark here, because we'll come back to it a few times. Psalm 103, starting in verse 10. He, God, does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. God's removal of our sin does not leave any behind, not even one percent. This is what Paul means when he describes us in 2 Corinthians five seventeen. As a new creation. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The old man, dead because of sin, stinking, rotten, characterized by wrath, and all of those other things that we looked at in the first part of this message, is gone. God removes that. God forgives our sin completely. It is not as if we were in prison. And now released just to be put on probation. We have been set free completely. Forgiven for the unpayable debt we owed. Our debt was not reduced. It was removed. Our dirty rags were replaced with the bleach white robes of Christ. Our sin is completely forgiven in the sacrifice of Christ. And not only is God's forgiveness complete. 100% placed on Christ. His forgiveness is also irreversible. Look at Hebrews 10:12. Hebrews 10:12. But when Christ had sacrificed, sorry, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. You guys remember those glow sticks? that you give to kids on 4th of July, since they can't shoot off fireworks yet. You crack them, and then they start glowing for however long they glow. And you tell tell the kids not to eat them, because whatever's inside is toxic or something. When you crack that glow stick, it's irreversibly changed. There is no resetting it. That is like God's forgiveness. Irreversible. God does not unforgive. Forgiving irreversibly is popping a balloon with a pin. It is burning a certificate of debt. It is shattering a clay pot of resentment. It is chopping down a rotten tree and planting a new, healthy one. It is God crushing his son under the weight of our sin so that we bear that weight no longer. God's forgiveness is irreversible, and it is also untiring. As we have studied extensively with clay... When we were caught in sin, we are at times tempted to try to self-atone. We think, there's no way God will forgive me this time unless I also do X, Y or Z to prove to him that I'm really sorry. Or I have to prove that I really mean by my repentance by a pattern of change before God really forgives me. He'll forgive me when I get to this level. But that is not how God forgives. Back in Ephesians 1.20, we see that God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Ephesians 2 says we are seated there with him. John picks up on a similar theme over in 1 John through 2one 1 John 1.9. He says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus, our advocate, is ready at every moment to, when we sin, advocate on our behalf before the Father, and he does not tire of this. This is how God forgives. It is costly, free, irreversible, and untiring. And his forgiveness is not under compulsion. It is not because of anything we have done to deserve his forgiveness. We don't. We deserve eternal judgment and wrath, far beyond anything that we experience here on earth. God does not forgive us because we deserve it. No, for those who are in Christ... God has forgiven us because of his character. God has forgiven us out of his character. The descriptors of his forgiveness that we just looked at show the character that is behind that forgiveness. The irreversible, complete, free, costly, and untiring manner of God's forgiveness show his disposition towards those who trust him alone. In other words, his forgiveness flows from his character. Let's take a look at the disposition of his forgiveness. The disposition of his forgiveness. First, that it is loving. God forgives out of love. Look with me again at Psalm 103. We'll repeat those same verses that we read before. Verses 10 and 11. It says, He does not deal with us according to our sins, or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. God forgives us because of the greatness of his steadfast love toward us. Listen to the description in a couple other passages. We've already looked at Ephesians 2. Let's turn back there again. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. God's love was demonstrated for us in the ultimate sacrifice. First John 4, 9 through 10 says, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And God demonstrates that love in kindness through Christ. Take a look back at Ephesians 2. We just saw that it was because of God's love for us that he made us alive together with Christ. But look at how Paul continues this in verse 6. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Not only did God make us alive together with Christ because of his love, He also raised us up with him and seated us with him that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us. Wow. God does not just sit back and hope that we figure out what his character is. No, he demonstrates his character through forgiveness because of his love and to demonstrate his kindness. God also forgives because he is tender-hearted. We said earlier that tender-heartedness is quite literally a disposition of compassion. Turn back to Psalm 103. Psalm 103, and we'll continue verses uh, 12 through 13. Psalm 103, starting verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. God forgives us. He removes our transgressions completely out of compassion, the perfect and tender compassion of a father to his children. Let me give you one more passage to root your understanding of the tender hearted forgiveness of God. This is really important to understand. Look with me at Luke 1, starting in verse 76. This is part of Zechariah's prophecy about John the Baptist. Luke 1, verse 76. It says, "...and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his, the Lord's, ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins." Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God. Because of the tender mercy of our God, he forgives sins that we may have salvation. I want you to note the emphasis in this passage. As I was talking with Chet on Wednesday, he pointed out that in verse 78, the author could have just written mercy and we would understand the tenderness wrapped up in the definition. But specifying tender mercy increases the emphasis on the tenderness of God's heart toward us. Paul emphasizes the same in Ephesians 2, verse 4, when he says that God being rich in mercy resulted in him making us alive together with Christ. God's act of forgiveness is because he is loving Kind and tenderhearted. God's forgiveness is not merely transactional, like a bank teller showing you a receipt telling you that you no longer owe your debt. No, God brings you near and shows you the lavish nature of His forgiveness that we see in Scripture. He shows you the full healing and growth that results from this forgiveness. He joyfully shows us His very character. That brings about forgiveness. When we forgive, we demonstrate we understand his forgiveness of us. What a sweet truth to dwell on. We demonstrate that we understand the incredible, unpayable debt we owed and the complete, costly, and loving forgiveness that God lavished on us. What a sweet truth that motivates us to forgive others because we understand how much we have been forgiven. So, when we put on tenderheartedness, kindness, and love that results in forgiving one another, we show we understand God's character. When we forgive others as God in Christ forgave, you could say that we embody God. Which brings us to the fourth truth that motivates us to forgive, which is... Forgiving others is a way we embody God. Forgiving others is a way we embody God. When we forgive one another at cost to us, when we forgive completely, when we forgive freely, when we forgive untiringly, when we forgive one another out of love and kindness, we literally put on Christ. God has not given us a to-do list of actions. He has given us Christ. Look at Ephesians 4 again. In verse 13, we see that we are to mature to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Drop down to verse 15 and you will see this put another way. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So, as we forgive one another, we do so much more than simply check off a list of characters, characteristics, or actions. We literally embody Christ. So, what does embodying Christ by forgiving look like? First, let's look at what costly forgiveness looks like. Let's take the example of someone who has been slandering you among friends. This person has been telling others falsely that you are not a very hard worker because your grades are not as good as theirs. They say that if you just worked harder, you'd be smarter. Ouch. While there may be some truth in this, the way that they have been spreading it to your friends is unkind. Forgiving this person is costly. Those conversations and the things that were said cannot be reversed. Some of your friends may view you differently than they did before there may be real implications maybe some of these friends don't want to work on group projects with you anymore when you forgive them there is cost assumed by you now this is not to say you should just ignore the things that they are saying gently confront them about this and seek to reconcile but understand that when you forgive them it is costly and be ready for that be encouraged by that Because as you do, you embody Christ. You embody his forgiveness. All right, so what does freely forgiving look like? It looks like forgiving with no strings attached. Forgiving freely doesn't set up a payment plan, after which forgiveness is earned by the one who wronged you. To use the example of the roommate from earlier, you say, I'll forgive you, If you pick up your stuff, or if you sacrifice for me in some way, that is not free. No, free forgiveness demands no payment. Free forgiveness embodies Christ. Untiring forgiveness. This is continuing to forgive even when you feel like someone has crossed you too many times. The Lord is clear in Matthew 18 that we are not to have forgiveness fatigue. Your roommate steals your food again, and you're tempted to think, man... Wasn't three times of genuinely forgiving enough? No, you're to forgive again and again and again. Now, forgiveness is not the same thing as trust. If I had a son who is injured by a babysitter, I am commanded to genuinely forgive. But it would be unwise of me to trust the babysitter to watch my child again. Just want to clarify that there is a distinction there. Okay. Finally, what does irreversible forgiveness look like? Your sibling borrows your favorite sweatshirt, the new boundless comfort colors one. But they were careless and lost the sweatshirt, gone forever. It was limited edition. They ask you to forgive them for the selfish motivation that resulted in their carelessness, and you genuinely forgave them. But then... You hear your sibling seemingly joking about how they lost the hoodie. You're tempted in that moment to blow up. Don't they know how much I like that hoodie? But instead, you remember that your forgiveness cannot be rescinded based on subsequent events. You must not resent but act with love and kindness toward your sibling in that moment and moving forward. You embody Christ with irreversible forgiveness. Now there are many more examples of what Forgiving and embodying Christ looks like. But I encourage you this week to think about and even talk with friends, even here in Boundless, about what it looks like for you to embody Christ by forgiving. Let's grow in forgiveness with one another. This embodying Christ by forgiving one another is much more than just for the sake of our own maturity, it is for the benefit and nourishment of one another in the church, as we talked about earlier. And when we embody Christ by forgiving, something incredible happens. God uses our faithfulness to show the power of the gospel to those who have not trusted Christ. And this brings us to the last truth that motivates us to forgive. Forgiving others evidences the power of the gospel to unbelievers, the gospel that has changed our lives. Forgiving others evidences the power of the gospel to unbelievers. God may be using our forgiveness of one another to make plain his saving power and bring an unbeliever from death to life, as we see in Ephesians 2. Think about it. As we put off the old self and put on the new self, love kindness, tenderheartedness, that results in true forgiveness of one another, unbelievers will see the stark contrast, that is, to how they respond to sin against them. They will wonder why and how we're able to forgive. They will say, I just can't find it in myself to forgive. The offense against me is too great. And the truth is, we can't find it in ourselves to forgive either. We are motivated to forgive because we are commanded by God to forgive. We are motivated to forgive because we are seeking to embody Christ. We're motivated to forgive because we understand our unity with Christ and our unity with one another. And we are ultimately motivated to forgive because of the overwhelming truth of God's forgiveness of us through Christ. Because we understand how much we have been forgiven. Forgive our sins as we forgive. You taught us, Lord, to pray. But you alone can grant us grace to live the words we say. How can your pardon reach and bless the unforgiving heart that broods on wrongs and will not let old bitterness depart? In blazing light, your cross reveals the truth we dimly knew, how trifling others' debts to us, how great our debt to you. Lord, cleanse the depths within our souls and bid resentment cease. Then, by your mercy reconciled, our lives will spread your peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel that has changed our lives. Thank you for the forgiveness that is in Christ alone. I pray, Lord, that you would use these passages, your word, to change our hearts, to make the pattern of our lives ones of forgiveness that embody you, Lord. Help us to strive towards greater unity with one another in the church and exemplify lives that have been changed completely, brought from death to life by your gospel. Thank you for each one of us here and how you're growing us into Christ. pray that as we go throughout the week, you would give us opportunities to be united with one another and to forgive, and in doing so, grow to be more like you. pray that the rest of this day, you would bless it, um, bless evening service tonight, May we continue to learn from your word. Pray this all in Jesus name. Amen.